Good morning. I want to tell you about a formative experience from, for me in high school, from my high school years, one of the most meaningful moments uh, that I had during, those, during that time. Uh, by the time I had gotten to uh, senior year, I had developed a certain cachet uh, with the other students. I had, I guess because I was in the play, I was one of those kids in the plays and stuff, people knew who I was. I had a certain status that I had gotten to. It's a brief moment in my life uh, where uh, I, was, I was actually popular. That was je jeopardized uh, by my becoming a Christian. And all of that sort of was, was uh, like tipsy. Uh, but, but one of the things that happened because I did become a Christian was I, I got to know this other student named Karl Krasinski. And uh, that was his name, really, Karl Krasinski. Um, and he was very loyal to me, started, you know, hanging around with me. We got to be good friends. Um, uh, it was great. But, you know, Carl was, uh, there's something strange about him, a little bit odd, uh, because his family uh, believed that high school was something you should just get through as, as quickly as possible. So they, they actually had him take extra classes. So Carl would, took these extra classes so that he actually got to a point where he could skip, he actually moved forward a grade. Um, so by the time I was in my senior year, Carl was actually almost ready to graduate. And so it looked like he was going to be able to graduate early, like a year early, because, you know, that's just what they thought, you know, get, get this high school thing done, get on to college, let's move on. Um, so that, that was significant because uh, in my senior year, we had this assembly and it was for seniors only. It was one of these times where you could go, get out of class, go to this assembly, but it was only for seniors. And I was there, and uh, Carl was thinking, you know, it looks like I'm going to be able to graduate. I should come too. It was ambiguous. That he had nowhere to sit. He came over with me, which is why I witnessed this. Uh, so he was, he was going to be sitting with me. And there was another student there uh, named John Kalaki. Okay. Now, I'm not kidding, you know, this is high school. People in high school had these, these names. So John Kalaki came in, and I'll tell you, he's a big football player of a guy. I mean, he's like a Biff-type character. And he was ready to hit somebody. I think he woke up ready to punch somebody. It's just like the way he woke up. That was, it was his mood. He came in, and he, was, he had all this energy, this senior assembly. Things were kind of wild. And uh, he, he, was, he came to a place, he was going to sit down, and he turned around, and he sees Carl Krasinski. So uh, John Kalecki, you know, does a double take and says, wait a second. He says, you're not a senior. You don't belong here. And, and Carl is like, uh, you know, uh, he says, you know, John Kalecki is kind of uh, Polish stock, you know, really uh, hefty guy. And Carl's like, what? And, and he's like, you're an imposter. John Kalaki is getting really exercised here with, with Carl Krasinski. And, and he's like getting really agitated. He's like, you should get out of here. This is just for seniors. And, and Carl was, you know, going to try to explain, like, well, actually, I could, you know, maybe I should be. But, you know, he was so flustered, he couldn't. And then John Kalaki got so exercised, he grabbed Karl Krasinski by the collar, and he pulled his fist back. His arm was in the air as he was going to punch him. 
Well, I want to welcome you to Ironworks Church this morning. I'm so, we're so glad that you could be worshiping with us. Uh, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we're really happy you could come with us. We're trying to follow the Apostle Paul's argument that there are of these three themes of the, of the just and the justifier to all who trust. And as we've been doing that, we've been going through the first section of Romans. Well, we're going to complete that section today. We're coming to the climax of the first part of the book, Romans chapter 4. We're going to be reading that today. And as we read that, which we're about to do, Josh is going to read it for us. I want you to pay attention to three words. We're going to read this passage from Romans 4. I want you to pay attention to three words because I want to really get into those words, really try to examine those words with you and define them in order to really understand and benefit what Paul is trying to tell us, the Apostle Paul. The three words are these. Righteous, reckon, and faith. Okay, righteous, reckon, and faith. So pay attention as we hear this read and uh, benefit from it greatly, I hope. Josh, would you read it for us? Please stand, if you would, as we hear the reading of God's word. All right. This is from two sections of Romans 4, starting at verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now verse 22. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Josh. Okay, righteousness. What does it mean? <clears throat> what does it mean to be righteous? And, you know, I want to give you a definition that it probably is not in your head at this time. I want to maybe expand or, or ask you to look at it a little differently because of the way that Paul talks about righteousness, the way he uses righteousness. You might, and, and what I want to define it as this morning for us is people coming into God's covenant with Abraham. That is... People come, if you're, if you're righteous, you have a status of being included in God's people. And you say, well, that's not how I think about righteousness. I hear righteous, I think of, you know, somebody doing moral things, right? And being upright, things like that. And, and yet, the way that Paul seems to be using this is that he's saying that we're afforded a, a status of sonship, of faithfulness as a, as a person of, of the covenant, righteousness. And you say, how does, how does that fit? I, how, I thought it had to do with sin. Well, if you take a few steps backwards, 
and ask about this covenant with Abraham, why God even had to make this covenant that was with exclusively with a certain people and then had this plan to include more and more people as, as history unfolded, it was because of sin. It was because of our immorality, our alienation from God. And because of that, he had to make this covenant with Abraham where he was going to bring about the inclusion of people as the people of God, as the children of God. And so um, if you look at verse 13, you see this, this is discussion in Romans 4 is about who is included in that people of God. And so that's why he talks about inheriting the world. That means, God, that means Abraham getting all of these people from all over into his family. And so I think, you know, N.T. Wright is actually helpful here uh, in, in bringing this out, that this is the discussion in Romans 4 uh, about being included. Righteousness is being included in the, in the people of God. Okay, now this is a good thing to do. Friends, this is good for us to, to think about righteousness this way because we have a deep, deep need to be included, to be on the inside. And we have a, a deep suspicion that we are not on the inside. We have a deep desire to be one of the ones on the inside of the group that's in front of us. And we, and we, and we always wonder do I really belong? Am I really on the inside? And that's something that goes very deep. We want to be righteous in this way. You know, as I was a little while, I was watching a video about the history of New York City. And it was, it was really a great video. It was, it was kind of going through all the things that made New York City what it was, all the things that built it up, why New York had developed the way it is, what, it, what, it, what went into it? And you had this old historian. I think it was, he was in his 80s. This was a really old character. And he was giving his kind of summary of how it was that New York became New York. And he said, let me tell you. He said, this is what I've learned in my 80 years. It's a real character. He said, this is what I've learned. There are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people. People on the inside and people on the outside. And let me tell you something. Everybody, everybody wants to be on the inside. And that, that was his analysis of how New York City, that's what drove New York City to become what it was. And you know, I was thinking, you know, he's kind of right, that we do have this desire and this feeling like we want to be on the inside. All of us is kind of deep within the human psyche. And political activists know this. You know, political activists, if they're smart, if they want to motivate, motivate people to some kind of political action, this is what they can tap into. And, they, and the smart ones know this. If they can create an, uh, create an, uh, uh, an understanding that there are two groups, there's an outside group and an inside group, and you're on the outside that, that's a powerful motivator for people. That will get people to the polls. That will get people to vote. If you, if, if you can be convinced that there are outsiders and insiders and you're on the outside, that, that can get you to the polls. That will get you to vote. That will get you to protest. That, in fact, that will get you to you know, overthrow things if, you, if that's your desire, if that's the program. It's so powerful within us. It doesn't just have to be within politics, right? It, it could be whatever it is that, you know, is your focus. Am I really 
one of the insiders in my school, right? Am I really on the inside in the school crowd? Am I on the inside of my program? Am I on the inside of my guild? Or am I on uh, the inside of my city? You know, speaking of New York City, um, I, when I was pastoring a church in Greenwich Village there called the Village Church, there was someone who came and wrote an editorial against the church because there was this big uh, controversy at the time of whether public schools should rent to churches because a lot of churches, not a lot of room in New York City. And so if you didn't have a lot of money as a church, you could rent from the public schools to, to meet there on Sundays. But people wanted, wanted that to stop. And so there was this woman who wrote this editorial and she specifically cited our church. She cited the village church as the reason why public schools should not rent to churches. And so she cited the village church. She said, these people like infiltrating, coming in. And, and I wrote, so this was published in the New York Times. You could probably find it. Her name uh, was, what was her name? Catherine Stewart. Yeah. Catherine Stewart wrote this editorial. I wrote a rebuttal to it. And I sent it in to, to the Times. And I said, where do you get off? This is a great rebuttal. It's a great argument. I said, you blow in here from Seattle. She was a journalist. I knew she had like come in from Seattle. Seattle, you know, she'd been there like about a month and she's, she's calling us the outsiders, like infiltrating the schools. I'm like, this is our town, you know? And by that point, the Village Church had been there for years, right? And we had been serving the community for years. We've been visiting people in the hospital who had AIDS during the AIDS crisis. We had been giving these programs where parents could drop off their kids and have a night out in the village. We, uh, we were also serving in the, the school that we were in. We were tuning the piano, making sure the facilities were up, paying for that for the sake of the school. We were serving the community, and this was our town. So I wrote this, this great rebuttal. Of course, the Times did not publish it because uh, the New York Times did not want uh, the schools uh, to be renting to churches. But I, we put it up on our website and said, you know, this is our answer. But that was the issue, right? The issue was who's on the inside? Whose town is it? Is it our, is, are we on the inside or is she on the outside or what? That was the same issue. Our, again, that's operating right deep within us. Am I on the inside of my church? Right? Am I really on the inside here? Am I one of the insiders here? No doubt these feelings came up when we were forming our pastoral search committee, right? We we're doing this search committee and people are like, well, am I getting nominated for that? You know, am I one of the people who's really on the inside? Or after you were not, we had so many people nominated, right? We didn't choose them all. Like, and I, no doubt, you, some of you might have said, I just, I'm wondering if I have time for this. But, but there might be some feelings of, am I on the inside here? Am I one of the insides? Why wasn't I nominated? You know, why was I nominated? Things like that, right? It's always operating inside of us. So to think about righteousness that way is very meaningful because righteousness means you are on the inside. Everybody craves being on the inside. We're never sure that we are. True for me, true for you as well, right? So that's righteousness, okay? First one. Second word, right? Reckoning. I love this word. In fact, the reason why we're reading from the RSV this morning is because it's, it's an older translation and it still uses that word reckon, right? It's a great old word. Might not hear it very much, uh, except maybe in Westerns these days, right? 
Yeah, the, you have uh, the guy, the cowboy saying, well, I'm going to go down to the corral and harness those horses, I reckon. Right? <clears throat> it means you're considering something, you know. While, we were, while we've been having these, uh, I've, I've noticed that while we've been preaching uh, on Romans, if you've noticed that the preachers, everybody seems who's spoken to you, they all seem to have a story of cer- a certain passage in Romans that meant so much to them at a certain time, right? And there's always this thing like, oh, this was formative at this, this time in my life. Um, well, I have one of those uh, moments as well, and it has to do with this word. It has to do with Romans 4. And I was up late one night, and I was studying this passage, and I come, came to understand what reckoning was that, what reckoning really meant. And, and, the, and it was a focus because Paul uses it so much, especially in Romans 4. Like we're focusing here on it in, in verses 20 through, 22 through 25, you see it come up. But if you count the number of times in the whole chapter that he uses it, it's 11 times. 11 times Paul uses this verb, logizomai in Greek, reckon. So I was up and I began to realize what was, what was being said here about this reckoning, right? And um, it's important because that first meaning, you know, the John Wayne meaning of I reckon, you know, that's, that's not the meaning here. There's another usage of reckon, right? And that means to account something as so, right? That means to come to believe something, to, to assert something about something else. Right? To make a judgment on the subject. Right? He was reckoned with the transgressors. Like that meaning. Okay? And that meaning is the key meaning for Romans 4. That to, to account something as, as, it, as if it were so. As if it is so. You know, there's, um, it's an important word in the Greek papyri. There's, there have been a whole mass of papyri, koine papyri, that have been found from this time period, from the first century. And this papyri, this group, nobody ever reads it because it's so boring. It's just about business transactions. But it's from this time period, written in Koine, all these papyri fragments. But what's interesting about that, all these papyri, is, is that it, they use this word a lot in these business transactions because there's a reckoning going on. There's an accounting that's going on. And so, you know, a young camel, a young colt grows up and he's at a certain age. He's reckoned, it says he's reckoned now to be a camel. He's reckoned in the mature camels. Okay, this reckoning that's going on. And here's, here's what was so meaningful to me. I hung my life late that night on this word. Because what Paul is saying here is that righteousness, this inclusion is reckoned to a person. It's reckoned to us. It's decided to be so. Just decided to be so. And, you know, that might not seem like much for us. Like when we reckon something to be true, we're kind of expressing our opinion, right? It's, it's what we think. Like, I reckon that this is so. I reckon this you to be righteous. I reckon you to be unrighteous. We're, we're just giving our opinion, right? But when God, set, when God reckons, it determines reality, it determines reality because he has the cred, because of how important he is. And you know, when, it depends on how important someone is, whether something is actually reckoned, right? A few weeks ago, I was over at the Rishtis, and I went downstairs. There was this gaggle of kids, 
that, that's usually there, you know, and I guess it's a certain, kind, a certain group of kids, maybe elders' kids or something, that were there. And I was noticing how we were deciding what to play. So I was spending some time with them, and, and the kids were deciding, you know, one kid, like, I reckon we should, you know, do this. I reckon that we should do that. And they were giving their accounting. And, you know, they all had, you know, valid opinions. But when Liam Olson decided they were going to do something, when he reckoned this was going to be the game, it was so. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why, maybe because he's older, certainly taller than anyone else in this gaggle of kids. But I noticed this on a couple of different occasions, actually. When Liam reckons it, it is so. This is what we do. And it's usually a game where he's in charge of something. It's red light, green light, and I'm telling you when to stop and when to go. Or we're all going to be soldiers now. And, you know, I'm the general. And, you know, if Liam says it, it is so. You know, the next thing you know, we're all doing push-ups or uh, jumping jacks because he's the general telling us what to do, right? When, when somebody important is there, or somebody at least tall is there, when he reckons it, that's what happens. Well, that's, it, that's the way it is like God. Friends, when he reckons someone righteous, that determines the reality. The past does not matter. The future doesn't matter. When he says it, it is so. So if he reckons someone as righteous, there's no going back. And that's what's going on here. God's reckoning creates the reality in our world. And what he, in this context, right, he's saying, he's saying the promise to Abraham, I'm going to make him the beginning of the Jewish people, and I'm going to include him, and then all of his children from the world. Bring them in. And so I focus on verse 17, because that's, that's the key word. He, is, he calls things that do not exist and they exist. Old translation says he calls things that, that are not as though they were. And they are. So that is what's going on here. You say, what exactly is he talking about? Calling something which doesn't exist then into exist. Well, there's a lot of images that come up for us, right? When God, in the beginning of creation, he, he reckons there to be light. There's light, right? Just because he reckoned it. When God reckons the waters are going to part and the earth to appear, then it happens. It is. The reality conforms to God's reckoning. Right? And he also says here, you know, bringing life from the dead. You see that in verse 17? Who gives life from the dead? So when, when Jesus was dead, he was dead. <laughs> he was just dead. But God reckoned him to be alive and called him forth. To the, so he rose from the dead. He reckoned there to be life. That's what kind of activity we're talking about here. The determining of reality by God's reckoning. So friends, if you are in Christ and God has reckoned you to be righteous, that means you're included. You no longer need to be craving that on the inside. Craving to be the insider. You no longer have to be in doubt about it and worried about it and letting that drive your behavior. You know, so much of our behavior is like, we got to make sure people know we're on the inside. That doesn't have to drive you. You don't have to write angry, angry letters to the New York Times about it because you know it, because it's already so. 
So in Jesus Christ, you do not have to spend your lifetime proving yourself, justifying yourself, demanding that people regard you as in. So that historian, as I thought about it, he was half right. You know about the people who are inside, people who are outside, half right. There are two groups of people in the world. There's a group of people who are struggling to be on the inside and never sure that they are, always struggling, always, always striving to be on the inside and never sure that they are. And there are people who have stopped struggling. That's the two kinds of people in the world. And the second kind of stop struggling because they've been reckoned there. That's the second word. Third word, right? It's righteous, reckon, and now faith. Very important in this passage. How does this reckoning happen? When does this reckoning happen? When there is faith. When there's this faith. Now, I want to try to adjust our understanding of faith this morning. Because I think a lot of times we, we have this definition in our head of what it is to believe. You say, well, what is it, what is it to have faith in Christ? What does it mean to believe in, in someone? And a lot of us, for a lot of us, we're thinking in our head, well, it means you intellectually assent to something. You say a prayer, maybe uh, do, uh, do through motions, and, and then you're in. That's done. That's not really the way Paul uses faith, the way faith is used in this, uh, in this context, the way that faith was understood in the ancient world. You know what faith is? Faith is transferring your loyalty. Faith is transferring your loyalty from something, anything really, to Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ, not just to have an intellectual assent about certain things about him, but to transfer your loyalty from anything, everything else, to Christ. That's what it is to believe in him, to, real, to, to, to have that transfer of loyalty, to associate yourself with him. That's what faith meant in the ancient world. And that's important, friends. It's important for us to, to kind of get that, incorporate that into our understanding. It's important, for, for example, because we're, we're about to celebrate Easter, right? In a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter in a postmodern context. And that's significant to do it in a postmodern context. We're not really in a modern context anymore. You know, there are a few moderns walking around and you might talk to them and, and they say, you know, and you say to them, well, believe in Jesus. And, and they say, well, show me the evidence, you know, of the empty tomb and, and show me all this uh, historical uh, reasoning. And, and that might be true for them. But for most people, most, po most po postmodern people today, you tell them, Jesus Christ died and rose again. You know what they're liable to say? Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, so maybe somebody died and rose again? Yeah, it could happen. Absolutely. Yeah, why not? Sure. And they throw that over their shoulder or go on to their next entertainment. It's very important to understand believing in Jesus doesn't mean just assenting to these facts it means associating yourself with that. It means transferring your loyalty to him. That's why we have verse 24 and verse 25. You see what he says? It's not just verse 24, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection happened. 
but verse 25, that we are associated with it. You see, we are loyal to what he went through. It's connected to us. That his death and resurrection, not just the facts of his death and resurrection, but, we're, but it's connected to us. We are connected to it. Okay? That's faith. So when God looks at faith, when he, when he looks and sees people transferring their loyalty, he is reckoning that faith as righteousness, as inclusion into the people of God. It's in the grammar of the kingdom. He's calculating faith as righteousness. That's the wonder of God's system. He looks at the faith. He sees the righteousness. We're in because we're with him. We are brought into union with him. So if we got these three words right, friends, then we are ready to understand at what happened at Middletown High School South in the Senior Assembly in 1980. I'm not going to leave you there. Let me tell you what happened. John, Kalak, John Kalaki had Carl Krasinski by the collar. His arm was back, and, and his fist, like he was going to knock the lights out of Carl Krasinski. And just as he pulled his fist back, just before he released his punch, John Kalaki felt a hand on his shoulder and he heard these words. It's all right, John. He's with me. And he was like, who's interrupting my punch? And he turned back and he saw me. That's all I said to him. It's all right, John. He's with me. John took a second, then he said, Oh, he's with you, Sam? Oh, well then, it's okay. <laughs> he actually kind of dusted off the, the lapels of, of Carl Krasinski. <laughs> and, and he said, well, that's all right. Then he turned, uh, you know, to, to direct his energies <laughs> somewhere else. Carl Krasinski kind of collapsed into the sea. He was so grateful. Carl Krasinski was saved by his association with me. Thank you. Thank you, Liam. That was, that was the moment. This is my moment of glory. This is, I'll tell you, this is why it was one of the most important moments in my life as a, as a high schooler. Because I was the object lesson. <laughs> from the moment that Carl Krasinski, from that moment on, he was, he was included in the assembly. Like he had no problem being there because he was associated with me. And that was one of the great moments of, the, of my life. I had shown myself the meaning of the gospel. Right? Just as, as Carl Krasinski associated himself with me, and so he was reckoned with the seniors. God reckons me to be included, to be on the inside, because of my association, my transferring my loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that is what's true of us. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are in that same position. I cashed in that day, and, and so it ended up being a picture for, for me, most important for me, of our salvation. So listen, if you're here this morning, and you uh, don't know what you believe, you're not sure about these things, you've been thinking about them, you, 
You don't know what you believe, but you do know one thing for sure, and that is you're on the outside. This is how you come in. This is how you stop striving and demanding that people see you as the inside. This is how it happens, by transferring your loyalty to the one who was reckoned to be a transgressor for you. Transferring your loyalty. If you can do that, God is reckoning you into the family of Abraham with all the benefits thereof. So we're turning to the table now.